1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
0: This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolly. Welcome to Play Me in our interview with Andrea Scott, the playwright behind *Control Damage, about the life and legacy of activist Viola Desmond, available now on Play Me. Hey, Chris. Hi, Laura. So you and I have both remarked that we really didn't know that much about Viola Desmond, beyond that she was instrumental in the civil rights movement for refusing to give up her seat in a whites-only section of a movie theater in the 1940s.
1: Right, and that she, as of 2018, is on our $10 bill, and I think there was a heritage moment that featured her, but generally speaking, we haven't heard that much about the woman behind the legacy. Although her sister Wanda Robson did keep her story alive, and is credited with bringing recognition to Viola's contribution to Canadian civil rights.
0: Yes, and Wanda sadly passed away this week at the age of 95. I know that she was able to see the play at Neptune Theatre when it premiered in 2020 and I think that must have been something for her to be able to see her sister's life portrayed on the stage and for the performers to get a chance to meet her. I was surprised to hear in your interview with Andrea that one of the reasons for the lack of firsthand accounts from Viola is that after she lost her fight to the Supreme Court, she retreated from the public eye and never gave any interviews.
1: Yes, there's not a ton of material to draw from or firsthand accounts of what she was going through at the time. In my conversation with Andrea, she points out the fact that often change makers like Viola Desmond suffer personal repercussions for their bravery and are often only considered heroes in retrospect.
0: I love that Andrea, in the absence of information about Viola's life, drew inspiration from her own experiences as a Black woman to help flesh out the emotional world of her character. Andrea Scott began writing in 2011 and has quickly become one of Canada's busiest writers known for her plays Eating Pomegranates Naked. Better Angels, A Parable, and Don't Talk to Me About Your Wife. Chris sat down and talked to Andrea about the daunting task of capturing Viola Desmond's life within a play.
1: This is my interview with writer Andrea Scott. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really enjoyed Control Damage, and I I can't wait to talk a little bit more about the show and and you as well. But before we go too far, for anyone who hasn't yet had a chance to listen to the show on the podcast, first of all, please go and listen to it. But can you just give us just a little sense of what the show is about?
2: Uh, What Control Damage is? Is about is Viola Desmond, who was arrested for sitting in the white section of a movie theater, the Roseland Theater in New Glasgow, uh, Nova Scotia. And I decided to take a perspective on it where she is the nexus. And then we see how her actions have affected people in Halifax and in New Glasgow, in the white community and in the black community. And so we see a full picture of who she is as a businesswoman, as a wife, as a friend, um, and as a victim of systemic and institutional racism.
1: Mm. What I love about Control damage is we get to see Viola Desmond's life from beginning to end. And we really get a sense of where she ended up was a result of where she came from. So I'd, I'd like to just ask you, can you tell me a little bit about your life um, growing up in London, how it all began?
2: It was great. I mean, it was London. London is very pretty. It's <laughs> called the Forest City. Um, But I mean, if you are Black... There's not a lot of people who look like me that I had to hang out with anyway. Yeah. Um The people that I knew who were black were like family members or yeah. friends of family members. But um, I didn't have any black friends in public school. Uh, so, yeah, I, I dealt with I dealt with a fair amount of racism from like a young age. Like, yeah. I mean, it was my first racist incident that I remember is kindergarten with some kid calling me a name. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. you know, that that was quite common. You know, it was yeah. the late 70s, early 80s when that kind of stuff was happening. And you just kind of accepted it. Like, wow. what, what else What else are you, you going to yeah. do? Like, I didn't, I never had a black teacher growing up. Um, and I still never, like, I never had one in high school, public school, university, or graduate school never happened wow. no never um uh, like the world is so different now for students like sure, you know yeah. being validated with their identity it's just it just was not a thing um but i i remember when i was in high school i, I made the determination that i would be popular and so i joined all the clubs and uh like, as as you may notice, i I mean, I wanted to be Connie Chung, so uh, being on the radio was important to me. so I wanted to develop my voice skills and how to speak on camera and speak on a mic. and I was. Uh, Engaged to do the announcements in the morning. So every morning I would go into the principal's office and sit in front of a microphone and I would read about what was going to happen that day. And I have a very, very clear memory of walking into the principal's office and saying, what's happening in China right now is something we should discuss. Have you seen the news in Tiananmen Square? We should address it. And he was like, no, 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 no. We definitely shouldn't talk about that. Just, you know, (laughs) talk about the assembly and talk about whatever is happening with sports. And I was like, okay and uh wow. did my job and then went back to the classroom and as soon as i sat down he got back on the mic and said i think it's very important that we look at what's happening around the world for example what's happening in Tiananmen square and i was like really? that motherfucker <laughs> um, and uh, that was one one of my um, first moments of having somebody steal my glory <laughs> wow <laughs>
1: yeah So looking at, uh, controlled damage, it premiered, I think, at the Neptune Theater in Halifax. Mm -hmm. And it happened in In 2020. uh, Yes. Early 2020, which is a pretty (laughs) heavy time. Yeah. So (laughs) it premiered and it was magic. Sold out tickets. I think the Globe and Mail said that it was harder to get tickets to control damage than it was to get to Hamilton. And great reviews. Everything was fantastic. And then what
2: happened? Oh, my goodness. I just was like, I was on cloud nine and I was on the flight back to Toronto on February the 23rd. Uh -uh. And I thought... Nothing's gonna stop me now. The only way my career won't take off after this play is if the world ends. And a little voice said, "Don't be melodramatic, Andrea." <laughs> and the world came close to ending.
1: Yeah, so COVID hit, and it was set to play at a number of places, including I think the Grand, wasn't it? Um, originally,
2: actually, what happened was, yeah, because you know the reviews were were great and the numbers were outstanding. And, and then I remember my agent saying, you know, I'm talking to a bunch of different people, you know, we'll, we'll figure out what to do when you get back, you know, I'll let you rest for a couple of weeks. And in those couple mm-hmm. of weeks, it, everything started yeah. to like, you know, accelerate all around the world regarding COVID. And, and then, yeah, I yeah. think what is, what was it? March the 16th or March the 14th and everything shut down. And I remember being like, Oh No. But I also was somebody who had faith that it wasn't going to last that long. I thought, oh, this will be over by the summer. Yeah. Um, but things just kept getting prolonged and prolonged. And I thought, I don't know when when would my play ever get produced at this point, because everything's being put on hold. So I don't know when... And, and my play is a big play. So for anyone to even take a chance on it, you know, you have to know that you're going to be able to make your money back. And now we have this COVID thing happening. I thought, yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever going to want to produce this. And then, huzzah, huzzah, Grand Theater in my hometown, Dennis Garnham's like, I love this play. I want to put it on. And I was like, oh, That's thank great. you. This is going to be great. And, and then... Yeah. <laughs> That should be, that should be the name of my autobiography. (laughs) And then dot, dot, dot. So yeah, that's what happened. So uh, yes, it had, it had been programmed. It was supposed to be um, opening in three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then, well. Omicron. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm talking with... Andrea Scott, the playwright of Control Damage. We're talking about the story of Viola Desmond, and we'll be back right after this.
0: I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real.
1: Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other.
2: There's something going on with him. It's like an act. Trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't
0: real. You understand?
1: Limited capacity. Available now on CPC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm interested from a writer's standpoint why you started with the Halifax explosion. I think it's it's an incredibly interesting choice to make.
2: I found the Halifax explosion a great metaphor for um, the start of something new, mm. even though it came from tragedy. I believe Viola was three years old when it happened, and to read that she was sitting in a, in a, in a high chair with her back to a window and that the explosion happened and it knocked the window blinds onto her and her father thought she was dead. And then she, in her little squeaky child voice said, daddy, those boys throw rocks at me. And the idea that she survived even that, and she survived with indignation. Like, you know what a little girl is like when (laughs) she feels like she has been wronged. I thought that's a good way to start, to start (laughs) this play, you know, to, to intermingle, the history with the personal Mm -hmm. and that's why i started with that and her father saying this is the girl that lived yeah and i knew she was special
1: yeah that's beautiful i also saw it as two very headstrong attitudes coming together refusing to move and it's going to be an explosion yes (laughs) yes um You know, the play demonstrates very clearly how much has changed since the 1930s, but it also shows how much hasn't changed. And I'm wondering what parts of Viola's life still resonate with you.
2: Oh, I think it's still very challenging to be a black woman in this world. I feel that our accomplishments sometimes get erased. I believe that you are always fighting to be seen and heard and taken seriously and not be told that you're being angry and disruptive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it hasn't stopped that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I feel like that has not changed. That has Mm -hmm. not changed. And that she was expected to just, take the hits for the community instead of standing up for herself, which ultimately would help the community in the long run. I mean, I have that in the play yeah. um, because the way, the way we look at Viola Desmond now is that she's a hero, but we have to remember that at that time, not everyone thought that what she was doing was right. Sure. It yeah. reminds me of Colin Kaepernick and how, while we are in it, we know there are people who support him, but there are other people who who don't support him. Yeah. But you know, twenty five years from now, will we look back on Colin Kaepernick and people will be talking about what a hero he was? Mm-hmm. It's it is like black historians looking at the way Martin Luther King is presented now, mm-hmm. and how yeah. back then he was considered a disturber. Yeah. And not everyone did think he was a hero. So we have to remember to look at things through the lens of history and not valorize these people and not recognize how much they actually suffered at the time. They didn't yeah. do it for glamour or for a spotlight. I mean, when I wrote the play, it was very difficult. I, well, actually, it was impossible. There are no interviews with Viola Desmond. So I, she did not seek the spotlight. She just wanted to watch a movie. You know, there's... <sighs> There's
1: a lot that I can relate to in controlled damage, um, but I also have to say, you know, I'm I'm a white male, and there's a lot that's outside of my lived experience, including the fact that I'm pretty bald, and no <laughs> I, I I want I want to explore because I know that there's a real significance to hair in black culture. And of course, there's this beautiful serendipity around Viola Desmond's connection to hairstyling. You know, she opened Mm. up her own salon at, what was she? She was early thirties, I think.
2: Oh yeah. Can you talk about probably late twenties actually. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about this
1: from both the perspective of the play, but also black culture?
2: Well, I like the idea of, of focusing on her being a hairstylist because that is a community. That's a whole community that she helped foment um being able to bring black women together in a place where they can feel safe and they can talk. You know? It makes me think of, you know, De Kink in my hair. Yeah. Which is, you know, about women confessing um while sitting in, you know, the hairdresser's chair. I didn't really have that in my play. There is a scene in a salon. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea that she, you know, she helped create that community and build that community and then build um build up more um hairdressers by having a school, a beauty school, so that her, you know, she could teach black women how to do black hair for other black women because it was, there was a lack and she stepped in and she filled that. Um, and, uh, I mean, when I was younger, I wanted to have straight hair. I always wanted to have straight hair. My hair is fluffy and kinky and Very difficult to deal with sometimes. And I would pretend that I had long hair by putting my nightgown on my head and Mm. like singing and, you know, flipping it back and forth like I was Cher. (laughs) Uh, you know, and, you know, so what Violet Desmond was doing is she was filling a need because there were a lot of women who wanted to do that as well. And so, except they didn't know who Cher was, but they knew who Rita Hayworth was. And so there was now this process by which you could get your hair straight. Mm-hmm. And move, you know, you could shake it. Um, so she was using what is now called relaxer on black women's hair. And that was, that was the style. That's what women did. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to, in my play, have a different perspective on that. Yes, there are women who are doing this and that that is something that they want. But I wanted there to be one student in her class who said, but what if I want to keep my hair natural? Yeah. What if I think this is the way I'm supposed to look? This is how God made me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Viola said something that you will—you might even hear it today. I mean, it'll be in hushed tones, but don't you want to look neat and tidy? Um, don't you want to look presentable? Don't you want to be able to work in any place that you want? You can't have all that unruly hair. I mean, we are still hearing about... Little girls being told that they have to straighten their hair in different parts of the world, black girls, because braids are not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, dreadlocks are not acceptable. Um, keeping your hair natural and big and fluffy and gorgeous, not acceptable. So it's a constant fight. It hasn't ended. And I felt like that would be a very good way of also showing the humanity of Viola Desmond.
1: Mm-hmm. I was wondering, as you were exploring the character of Viola Desmond, how much you were actually exploring aspects of yourself. I mean, how how much of Viola is actually in you?
2: One of the things that I was drawn to was the fact that Viola Desmond was a small woman in stature. She was, I think, either four foot ten or four foot eleven. And I am also a small woman. I'm five foot one. And I find that when you are a youthful looking person who is also small, people infantilize you and they don't always assume that you are going to amount to much and that you need to be taken care of. And Viola Desmond was somebody who did not need to be taken care of in any way, shape or form. No. She uh, came from a big family that really supported her and believed that she could do anything that she wanted. She had that kind of a family, those kind of parents. And so did I. Um, and yet you go out into the real world and you find out that not everyone feels that way about you. And that's what she went through as well. I mean, she had her business, her salon. Uh, she researched and developed her own cosmetics and then sold them on the East Coast. Uh, She just went for it without asking permission. And I feel like I have done the same. I mean, I, for a long time, I sometimes would go to people who I felt were experts to ask them, what should I do? But the thing is, I didn't really have a lot of black women that I could go to mm-hmm. who had done what I was trying to do and yeah. say, how do I do this? Besides Janet Sears, I really couldn't think of who else I would be able to say, okay, how do I, yeah. how do I manage to A, write a play that people want to see and B, how do I get it into theaters? Yeah. I didn't have that. And Viola Desmond didn't have that either. Yeah. You know, she, she did go to the United States to, to, to learn how to do hair, black hair. Um, and she learned at, um, the CJ Walker school, um, CJ Walker being one of the first black millionaires. Um, so she, but she had to leave her country. She had to leave Canada yeah. to learn that. And I didn't have that as an option. It wouldn't even occur to me to yeah. go to school in the United States to learn from Toni Morrison or um, Susan Laurie Parks or Lynn Nottage, uh, that would be a very privileged existence for me to have had, actually, if I had been able to have parents who could afford to send me to a school where I could learn at the knee of Pulitzer Prize winners. Yeah. So, you know, she had something that I did not have in that way. So that's one of the things that I saw in myself with her, is people saying, no, you can't, and her saying, yes, I will. Yeah, And that is something that I have done.
1: I'm really curious about the fact that Viola was... Half white and half black, and how that had an impact on not only what she did, but how she was perceived. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that from a perspective of the play and the character, but also how it resonates still in today's world?
2: Oh, this is a, this is a challenging topic, uh, because I myself am not mixed, uh, or biracial. Uh, yeah, I felt like it was important to address that Viola Desmond, while she was Black, was also perceived as mixed race, uh, biracial. And because of her lighter skin, allowed her access to places that maybe other Black people were not allowed, which could also possibly feed into why it didn't occur to her when she went to New Glasgow that she couldn't sit where she wanted to sit. Um, she was just allowed to. She felt like she would be allowed to. Um, and some people might have said, well, you know, back in Halifax, maybe people cut you some slack because of your parents. You know, her parents were very well-respected and beloved. And, you know, the Desmond children were maybe given more liberty than other black children, possibly, and I'm sure they would mm-hmm. not have seen it that way because when white people look at a mixed child, they just see a black child. Yeah. Simple as that. You know, you're darker than me, you're different and racial slurs. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Wanda Robson, uh, Viola's remaining sister, has talked about, had, had talked about in interviews um, many, many, many years ago about growing up uh, in Halifax and the racism that they endured uh, and it's a conversation that still comes up in the black community about being fairer skinned, lighter skinned, and having more opportunities than darker skinned people. It, it's, it touches a nerve. It still touches a nerve in Canada and the United States and in other parts of the world, but we're talking about North America right now. And I, I don't use the word privilege in the play because no one used that word back then. But I do have an argument happen between Viola and her husband, where he says, a little bit of me, I, I think a little bit of you expects to get special treatment because you're light. And she hits back at that and says, I'm black like you. And he's like, no, not like me. Um, Jack Desmond was darker. And I do know that I believe Wanda did mention to me that, yeah, her husband did lob that accusation that maybe she was trying to pass for white which she was very resentful of and told her husband no I'm not trying to pass for white Um, so this is something that's been going on for as long as I can remember and has been detailed in books and in plays and in films and will continue because when differences occur within the same racial group there can be conflict, rightfully or not. How
1: would Viola's story be different if she wasn't
2: biracial? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know how much, I don't know how far she would have gotten. I don't know if she would have had the opportunities That she had as a lighter skinned woman. It's, it's difficult for dark. It was very difficult for darker skinned women to advance. It happened. Um, but it was difficult, very, very difficult. Um, and that's why there is sometimes resentment within the black community between darker skinned and like lighter skinned, uh, men and women because darker skinned People will look at lighter-skinned people and say that they get opportunities that they themselves were not allowed. And in the United States, um, it would be you're the you're either the house Negro or the field Negro. Some people mm-hmm. work in the fields, and some people get to wear the you know get to wear the uniform. And the idea being that white people would only accept a black person who looks as closer to them than what black people dark-skinned black people look like it's it's complicated it's a very complicated issue yeah Mm
1: -hmm. andrea thank you so much for letting us share control damage with our audience and also for taking the time just to talk about not only the life of viola desmond but also some of the issues that are brought up in the play
0: That was Chris speaking with playwright Andrea Scott about her show, Control Damage, which you can listen to anytime on Play Me. We'll be back next with Buffoon, the award-winning play about a circus performer who turns his misfortune into jokes by acclaimed writer Anash Arani.
1: Until then, you can hear Play Me on the radio every Sunday night at 9pm and on Wednesdays at 11pm on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. And if you’d like to hear more work by Andrea Scott, you can check out our show Better Angels a Parable on season 1 of Play Me. Thanks for listening. We’d love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme.cbc.ca at and don’t forget to follow us on Twitter at expect Theatre or Instagram at Playme Podcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. A special thanks to our CBC producers, Sarah Claydon, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer.
0: The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is R.F. Norani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger.
1: Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.